You're listening to In the Balance, an Iowa Judicial Branch podcast. Welcome back. In honor of Constitution Day on September 14th, In the Balance is releasing an early episode on the topic of Gideon versus Wainwright, a federal Supreme Court decision celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. I sat down with Chief Justice Susan Larson Christensen of the Iowa Supreme Court to learn more about this pivotal case in federal and state court history. Welcome back to the podcast, Chief Justice Christensen. We are releasing this episode early in honor of Constitution Day on September 14th. Can you tell us a bit about the origins and significance of Constitution Day? Yes. Well, thank you, Marissa. It's a pleasure to be here to visiting with you today. Um, Constitution Day is important because it celebrates the birthday of the United States government um, about uh, 236 years ago on September 17th, 1787. Our country's founders came together at a constitutional convention in Philadelphia. Um, They got together to sign the U.S. Constitution, which is the document that outlines the limits of our government, and it protects our individual rights and our liberties. For being such an old document, it really is incredibly remarkable because it has weathered the Civil War, the Great Depression. It continues to shape our lives every day. And I, I believe that the Constitution will endure the test of time, but only if we all work to maintain the freedoms that it provides. So we celebrate Constitution Day with the hope that it will encourage everyone to learn more about the history of our Constitution. The case of Gideon versus Wainwright is a federal Supreme Court case from 1963. And before we dig into the outcome of that case and its effect on federal and state courts, can you set the scene and give a little background on the original case? Sure. Um, The Gideon versus Wainwright is one of my favorite cases, and I think every law student has also learned about it um, towards the beginning of their educational um, experience. But back in 1961, um, there was a bar, a pool room down in Florida, and one evening in the middle of the night, um, there was apparently a theft, and they were missing some money from the jukebox and from the cash register. There was an eyewitness who uh, reported seeing a man named Clarence Gideon who left the pool room in the wee hours of the morning carrying a bottle of liquor liquor and had a pocket full of coins. So Mr. Gideon was charged with breaking and entering as well as intent to commit larceny. Consistently, Mr. Gideon said, I didn't do it. And over and over, he um, wanted someone to listen to him, but it didn't work and he ended up having to go to court. So on that first hearing, he asked for an attorney because he did not have the funds to, to hire one himself. And he was promptly told no by the judge. Now, the reason he was told no was because in Florida at that time, um, because he was not charged with a capital offense, he did not qualify for the appointment of counsel. Now, a capital offense is a, an offense, a crime, where the punishment is the death penalty. And by the way, Iowa does not have that. But at the time, Florida, um, that was their rule. No court-appointed attorney unless you were um, being charged with something that could result in your death. So Mr. Gideon was left up to his own um, devices and had to defend himself without a lawyer. 
And keep in mind, he only had an eighth grade education. But in spite of that, he did a really good job. He uh, gave his own opening statement. Um, He cross-examined the witnesses put on by the state. He even called his own witnesses. He declined to testify, which many people know that means he took the fifth. And he also made some closing arguments emphasizing his innocence. For all of his good work, um, it was not good enough, and he was found guilty and sentenced to five years. So that's a bit of the background of, of how he got into the legal system. And after the state court's decision in Gideon's case, he then mounted his own appeal on the basis of the Sixth Amendment's right to counsel. What does the Sixth Amendment detail, and what were Gideon's arguments for that appeal? While Mr. Gideon was in prison, um, he had a lot of time on his hands. Remember, he was sentenced to five years. So what did he do during that time? Most prisons have a law library, and he took advantage of that and um, studied. There's actually pictures that you can find of him, if you Google it, of him studying in the law library at the prison. And, And what did he learn through his own studies with an eighth grade education? He learned that his Sixth Amendment right had been violated. And just to give you a little background, what is the Sixth Amendment? Well, it guarantees several things in criminal cases, um, such as the right to a speedier public trial, the right to an impartial jury. Um, Defendants have a right to be informed of the charges that are being made against them. Defendants also have a right to confront and call witnesses. And as in the Gideon case, the focus of the Sixth Amendment right is the right to an attorney. So after Mr. Gideon figured out that in his own research, his Sixth Amendment right had been violated, he got angry, understandably so. And he started doing what what he could do without a lawyer. He started writing letters, handwritten letters. His first letter was to the FBI. Now, as an attorney and judge myself, I know that doesn't make sense because the FBI had nothing to do with his investigation or crime. But in, in Mr. Gideon's mind, he he didn't know where to start. And, and of course, the FBI seemed like a big deal to him. Uh, they gave him absolutely no response. So a period of time passed, and he decided to write another letter. His next letter went to the Florida Supreme Court. Well, obviously, he's getting a little bit warmer. He's in the right state. But um, still, he heard nothing, nothing at all, not even a response. So he took it up yet one more notch, and he wrote a letter It actually was a five-page handwritten petition, and you can find that also by Googling it. Um, he, He addressed it to Chief Justice Earl Warren of the United States Supreme Court. So the FBI ignored him. The Florida Supreme Court ignored him. I would think that the chances of the U.S. Supreme Court ignoring him were probably pretty high. But that isn't what happened. Um, Chief Justice did respond, and they accepted the case. And they said, yep, we think this is an issue we need to look at. Not only did they accept the case, uh, but he was, for the appeal, allowed an an opportunity to have representation. And and boy, did he get representation. His attorney that was court-appointed was named Abe Fortas. And just a little side note, um, he later served as a justice on the United States Supreme Court from about 1965 to 1969, so not much longer after the Gideon case. So with Mr. Fortas um, representing him, the argument that was made with the U.S. Supreme Court was as follows. According to Mr. Fortas, um, without any training in the law, how could Mr. Gideon ever go up against a trained lawyer? That would be an unfair match. And therefore, it would be impossible for Mr. Gideon to have a fair trial without legal representation. So it's a pretty simple argument, actually. How can a non-lawyer go up against a trained lawyer. 
that in and of itself is it would be grounds for an unfair trial in his mind. So the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on it on March 18, 1963. That was two years after Mr. Gideon had been arrested and served time in jail. And the decision that came down was nine to zero. It was unanimous, and it was in Mr. Gideon's favor. So the significance of Gideon versus Wainwright um, is, I think, very interesting. This decision had a major impact immediately. About 2,000 convicted people were freed just in Florida right after the ruling. But it did not um, work that way for Mr. Gideon. He had to stay in jail, but he was given a new trial with court-appointed counsel. He chose his own court-appointed counsel. I find this interesting. It was a lawyer from the community where he came from. Um, His name was W. Fred Turner. I had a hard time actually learning much about him. He was just a small town attorney. Anyway, Mr. Turner attacked the eyewitness's testimony. He got the cab driver um, to be a witness for Mr. Gideon, and the cab driver testified that Mr. Gideon was not carrying liquor on the night in question. And this new jury deliberated for about one hour, and they acquitted him, which means they found him to be not guilty. So that's quite an interesting case, and I think the argument that was made seems simplistic today. But up until that Gideon case, there had been a, a case about 20 years earlier, the Bettis case, that said the exact opposite, that they, he would not have been entitled to an attorney. So it was kind of interesting how Mr. Gideon's case changed the course of that particular issue with an argument that was put together by Mr. Fortas. Now celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling in Gideon's favor, how has the legal understanding of the Sixth Amendment's right to counsel evolved in the decades since? Well, according to the Gideon case, um, state courts are constitutionally required to provide counsel in criminal cases for any defendant who is unable to afford his or her own attorney. So I, I think one example of how the legal understanding of the Sixth Amendment right to counsel has evolved would be to talk a little bit about um, the situations where someone does not want an attorney. So Mr. Gideon was begging for an attorney. I know as a former prosecutor and a trial judge that there are also individuals who say, I want to represent myself. That's called pro se, which means on one's own behalf. So what about those kinds of cases where someone says, I don't want a lawyer, and it might be a very high-level offense? Well, there was a case in 1975, which would be about 14, 15 years after um, the uh, Gideon case began, from the U.S. Supreme Court. And in that case, Ferretta versus California, the finding was that in addition to the Sixth Amendment right to retained or appointed counsel, it also guarantees the right to represent yourself. So it's kind of the other side of the coin. But it's not in all cases just because someone asks to represent themselves, especially in a um, a high-level criminal offense. The court needs to make a determination as to whether or not that defendant is waiving right to counsel knowingly and intelligently. But there is a right to represent yourself as well. And I think that's an evolution of the Sixth Amendment since the Gideon case. And this case started in a Florida district court before making its way to the federal Supreme Court. Can you give us a refresher on how federal constitution decisions impact state constitutional cases? Well, federal constitutional cases are certainly a helpful source to guide our decision making on similar issues here in Iowa. But we're not bound to follow them when we're interpreting our own constitution. 
We start with the principle that our court is the final decision maker on the meaning of the Iowa Constitution, and likewise, the U.S. Supreme Court is the final decision maker on the meaning of the United States Constitution. So to the extent that the Iowa Constitution has the same language as the U.S. Constitution, we will look to the U.S. Supreme Court for guidance. Here's a quote that we often have made in some of our opinions. We jealously guard our right to construe a provision of our state constitution differently than its federal counterpart, though the two provisions may contain a nearly identical language and have the same general scope, import, and purpose. And lastly, are there any thoughts or hopes you have for people listening to this episode to take away from this historical case? Well, I think Gideon versus Wainwright is a great reminder that anyone can make a difference if they don't give up. While wrongly incarcerated, Mr. Gideon continued to pursue his case because he believed in it. With only an eighth grade education and, and little to no financial resources, Mr. Gideon impacted our legal system in a monumental way. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Chief. Thank you. You've been listening to In the Balance, an Iowa Judicial Branch podcast hosted and produced by Marissa Gall. If you would like more information about Iowa's courts, you can visit www.iowacourts.gov. You can also follow the Iowa Judicial Branch on Twitter and YouTube at Iowa Courts. This episode of In the Balance is now adjourned.